happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 180 for Wednesday, June the 10th, 2020. My name is Wes Fryer, coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist, uh, actually really enjoying gearing up for a couple Minecraft camps, uh, virtual Minecraft camps that I am going to be leading in the next two weeks. And I've got about 12, 12 kids that are volunteering to help moderate said camps and doing some great creative, creative building and then, uh, push, you know, push the envelope with the things that, that I am, uh, able to do. And anyway, I just, I'm not a gamer, so it's fun to get pushed in this way. Cause I, without encouragement and a catalyst, I don't find myself real randomly in, in Minecraft, sadly, but joining me as always not playing Minecraft, but apparently in some, you know, virtual video game like environment, uh, with lasers <laughs> is Jason Knifer coming to us from Missoula, Montana. Jason, do, do does a laser light show like that happen every night in Missoula when all the neighbors howl at the moon? Or yes, it's just, yeah, it's just the phenomenon of Missoula. We've got laser light shows every night here. It's the Northern Rocky Mountains. We tend to like our laser lights. Um, but I am indeed Jason Eifer. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school that is uh, housed on the fabulous University of Montana campus in the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education. And um, indeed, I am joining you from beautiful Missoula. Uh, it's been rainy here much of the last week, which frankly I like in June because rainy June means a less likely on fire August for Western Montana. And um, it yesterday it rained all day and today. It rained part of the day, and it got up to about 75 by the end of the day, and uh, it's going to be 96 on Friday. That's not that's not the weather I'm looking for, but a little secret, uh, after a long um, a long time, we decided to pull the trigger on air conditioning. So if we figure we got to be stuck in our home, and um, I did, uh, for long-time listeners to the podcast know that I used to broadcast from my basement, uh, and now I have moved into an upstairs guest bedroom. I've totally stacked it out as my office, but the problem with that is, is that it gets hot up here during the uh, crispy summer months in western Montana. But we are not here to talk about my weather. We are here to talk about education technology news. Wes, what is this podcast all about? Well, usually, and we did take a week off last week, we are here talking about the past week's technology news. So we're going to talk twice as fast because we've got to cover two weeks. No, we're not going to do that, but we could, but we won't. Uh, we're going to be using an educational lens to take a look at some recent headlines and putting our editorial spin, not having any real time limits other than the fact that we're going to try to, to do this for about an hour. And, you know, if we decide to pontificate and rant on something, uh, we will. But generally, that will not be politics. It will be things relating to news in the techosphere. But of course, since we've been sheltering in place and in having COVID and there have been a few events that have happened in the nation with regard to some some police actions and deaths and protests. You know, sometimes we touch on other kinds of things. So on that note, Dr. Neifer, since you are, as usual, the the uh, most significant contributor to tonight's list of articles, which, by the way, you can find on edtechsr.com slash links, where would you like to start? Well, let's let's start in on on uh, the protest bit for a moment, only because I, there's some really good advice to give. And um, 
uh, obviously, you know, major news happening in the last two weeks, uh, uh, massive protests, not just nationwide, really around the world. And, um, uh, and certainly our best to those that, that are expressing, uh, I think a, a, a well-founded, um, uh, a discontent uh, of, of, of happenings in our nation. But I want to do is, is this is a tech podcast. I want to talk a little bit of, for a moment about safely protesting with tech. And I've seen a number of references to this um, on social media, and I found a pretty good article. Um, I'm going to add a, a, an additional piece that I think, Wes, you can provide some insight on here in a moment. But these are three things you must do to protect your privacy while protesting, because the bottom line is if you bring your cell phone with you, your cell phone is a bit of an information beacon that can be used to identify you later. And if you're trying to stay anonymous for whatever reason, um, um, uh, uh, that you may want to consider maybe making uh, some changes about how you use technology. So a couple of quick pieces of advice from, this is from Popular Mechanics on June 3rd, I'm sorry, June 4th. Uh, Courtney Linder suggests three things. First, uh, clear your metadata from photos that you share. Whether you know it or not, a lot of information ends up getting tacked onto photographs taken with cell phones in the form of metadata, including locations where you can, where the photo was taken at. Uh, a lot of modern phones will ask you whether or not you want to attach geotagging, as it's called, to photos before or when you first set up your camera on your phone. But in case you don't know whether it's on or off and you want to make sure there's absolutely no risk um, to a photo, uh, 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 tagging its location for whatever reason, doesn't really matter uh, why, then they refer to a lot of great uh, apps. Uh, probably the one that, that uh, in fact, I recognize this one. Uh, it's called Photo Metadata Remover. It's basically uh, an app that allows you to upload a photo uh, taken with your phone. It strips all the metadata, and so just the photo remains before you post that on social media. It also gives great advice that if you're posting social media posts and want to blur out other protester faces to save their privacy as part of, of, of this process, uh, then it gives you advice on how to do that. It also suggests that you turn off location services so your phone is not an, a, a location beacon for you. Um, and certainly there has been many suggestion, suggestions that cell phone location data may be used against you. And, um, you know, it, it things have changed quite a bit since the Edward Snowden days in regards to what uh, uh, what is being used location-wise for data or not. I, I would make no comment about our current state of affairs there, um, but, you know, better safe than sorry. But I'm actually going to give a fourth suggestion that I've seen on a number of uh, social media accounts. And Wes, I know that you actually utilized this as a strategy once traveling overseas, but consider using a burner phone. Right. You can buy dirt cheap Android devices now that you can sign in on. It's not necessarily a fake account, but maybe a secondary account that like you can get another Google account to sign in on an Android phone and, you know, download what you need. Right. Social media platforms, perhaps a uh, end to end encryption uh, messaging service, perhaps texting, if, if that's what you need to connect with others as part of this process. But if you are swept up uh, as part of uh, some sort of. Of, of, of crime sweep and uh, you want to keep your privacy, um, you know, a burner phone means that none of the other information um, uh, that, that might have been on your regular phone is then accessible by authority. So consider these as, as, as kind of safety tips when using your phone during protest. And Wes, you know, at one point you actually became a extremely temporary Android convert in part because you picked up a burner phone. 
Yeah, it was for nine months. So I mean, you know, that wasn't just for uh, just for a few days or a few weeks. Right. Um, but yeah, that that was when I traveled to Egypt here a couple of years ago, and you know, I wasn't wanting to to be crazy. Although I have been known to wear a literal tinfoil hat on the show. It's been a few years, but I have done that before. But you know, <laughs> Egypt is not a uh, it's certainly not a journalist friendly country, and you know, it's it's a it's a dangerous country in many respects. Um, in you know from from certain vantage points and so anyway i was concerned about yeah all the data getting sucked off of my device and and being read so i traveled with an android phone and did not have you know all my regular accounts logged in and one of the one of the things in all this to be aware of you know are what your rights are and what law enforcement can do and um you know we we've had folks and and this is customs is interesting because you're kind of in a no man's land when you're in customs you're not right. actually in the the country you're traveling into or out of and officials really have a lot of power uh to detain you if they are suspicious or you know want to uh they they want to do it from what i understand and uh, we've actually had some cases of, you know, people being detained for not giving up the password for their device. And, um, you know, there's a lot of gray lines there. But the bottom line is, if you want to, you know, be serious about privacy and safety, you know, you've got to be focused on on your phone um, because that's the number one. The number one thing that we all have right now, really, that can just give away a, a ton of information about us. Now, of course, you know, and we're not to be clear, I, I'm not. um you know, I'm, my my purposes in doing this as a privacy advocate, because sometimes I think people are suspicious, like, well, I have nothing to hide. Um, anyway, that, that that's a we could go down a long rabbit hole of talking about why, right. you know, we all have a strong need for privacy. And it's not just, you know, criminals and terrorists who want to promote privacy. We should have lots of law abiding citizens, you know, advocating for our fundamental rights in the United States. And we could argue, you know, universally as human beings. So privacy is important. And we have really just, you know, crept in, in, in a really short amount of time to an era where, you know, you and I have more information in this little thing that sits in our pocket or purse or whatever, uh, maybe than we might even have just laying around in our, in our house. And so, you know, putting that in somebody else's hands, uh, you certainly want to be having obviously a, a passcode, you know, on your device. Uh, but just, you know, thinking about these things and it was fascinating. And I think, you know, this is not resolved, of course, in Hong Kong, but watching student protesters, uh, really, I think in the last, what, six to eight months, I mean, it's yep. been a long, long time going, um, the ways in which with facial recognition, uh, you know, actually the wearing of masks there, I think pre-COVID, but uh, the ways in which they were being savvy to uh, surveillance technologies and, you know, trying to protect themselves and protect their identity and, and things like that. So these are interesting topics. And I, I will just say that I think it's a great day to be an advocate for student voice. I think that we're seeing, you know, all kinds of perspectives and voices being shared. And we're seeing, uh, you know, whereas sometimes, and I'm sure tonight we'll talk about media literacy and perhaps the amplification of some disinformation or, or misinformation, that kind of thing. But there are wonderful examples of, of so many different people sharing their stories and sharing their perspectives. And so even as we think about the summer and professional development and returning back to school, I think being ready to have some conversations with students um, about a variety of different topics around um, the protests and, you know, uh, what happened to George Floyd and what kind of agendas things people are advocating for. One of them needs to needs to be the sharing 
of our ideas and our voices and how do we do that uh, appropriately and responsibly, but also, you know, how does safety fit into that and security and privacy and those kind of things. Great topics for conversation. Right, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that privacy is bipartisan, that there are people on both sides of the political spectrum that are strong believers that that uh, and, and, and Wes, I think you really nail it, that it's not about hiding something. It's about that everyone has a fundamental right to privacy. And that should include um, in the modern era when it is a lot easier to violate people's privacy. So let's let's uh, keep that in mind as we go about things. So, OK, well, where to next, sir? Well, we, that could be a nice segue to the tech correction, because as longtime listeners and viewers of the show will know, Jason coined the term the tech correction many, many months ago. And we are continuing to see this backlash that, you know, is, is brewing. And, and the reason I say segue to that is we do not have in the United States yet the kind of legal privacy protections that I think we need. And Europe, with the passage of the GDPR, the General Directive, Privacy regulation, I think, something like that, um, you know, is, is basically a little ahead of where we are. Uh, constitutional scholars among us, which I'm sure debater Neifer counts himself, know that the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, I think is what it is, is that has the inferred, you know, right of, of privacy. I mean, there, there we got, we got, you know, rights against search, unreasonable searches and seizures, but it's an inferred right and it's been expansively and I think appropriately interpreted by our courts. But anyway, the tech correction is coming. So if we take a look, by the way, at our edtechsr.com slash links page, you'll see that Jason covered our first article under the heading privacy and protesting. But we can go to articles under other headings, including COVID, the Google, Chrome OS, social medias, Apple, technology correction, miscellaneous. And then, of course, we'll be getting to ye old geek of the week at the end of the of the end of the hour. So, Jason, you were the one who put in the Verge article uh, about 3M suing Amazon. So do you want to pick that one up? Sure. Well, um, a great article from I think this was yesterday's Verge that that 3M is suing an Amazon storefront that had sold fake N95 masks for twenty three dollars a piece. And there's been a lot of information in actually there's been a number of angles to uh, acquiring equipment. And of course, my cat chooses right now that she needs to be near me. So uh, come on, Lily. There we go. Um, the, there's been a lot of information. And in fact, I, I heard some, uh, uh, NPR traffic this morning that talked a little bit about the companies that uh, had promised to get protective gear that, that answered large government contracts. Uh, and then in some cases bought legit stuff and other cases bought fake things on the open market. But this particular article talks about 3M, who is, uh, 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 uh the maker of the N95 mask, the personal protective gear mask. It's used in a variety of applications, although right now, is considered to be very important to protect yourself uh, from COVID. There was a company uh, that was called KMJ Trading Incorporated that sold $350,000 of these N95 respirator masks, uh, but apparently... Um, the, uh, the masks themselves were fake and they also were extraordinarily marked up. Uh, these are, uh, list price $1.27 to get a, an N95 mask, a 3M N95 mask. These were being sold for $23 a mask. And there have been a lot of articles about, uh, uh, Amazon and, uh, fake products on Amazon, especially in light of COVID. Um, but the reason why this article 
article stuck out to me is because I, I happened to buy an SD card last week. I'm working on a little tech project at home right now. I'm taking an old iPod uh, mini from uh, 2005 and I'm pulling it apart and adding a, uh, an SS, uh, or I'm not an SSD, an SD drive, so a micro SD card drive to it. So it's big and fast and has much better battery under that. It's fun to pull it apart and, and play around. And I was doing some reading online and apparently that there's a lot of kind of geek advice that buying uh, SD cards, micro SD cards on Amazon is pretty risky because of the large number of fake cards that appear under major brand names on Amazon. And I'm not talking about sketchy looking ones that uh, are fake, right? That, 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 that uh, they're knockoffs, they're brand names you've never heard of before. They're usually a lot cheaper. In a lot of cases, they're fake cards because they purport to be one size and they're really another and they will likely fail because they're not meant to hold the capacity that they're advertising themselves as. But in this particular case, I'd read a couple of different forums online that said that they 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 suggest to people that they just pay the markup at their local uh, retail store to buy an SD card because their supply chains are so much more solid because there are so many fake cards sold under real brand names on Amazon. So. Interesting article, certainly interesting time because of the, the number of, of, of products that have been sold on Amazon that have been, um, uh, apparently fake or, or, or price gouged. I would also note that I've had at least, like counting in my head, a half dozen or so where folks look for equipment, uh, that is at this point, uh, uh, sold out. The, the most common one are webcams, people that are suddenly working at home. Um, I have two or three Logitech cams that I strongly recommend, uh, to people because I do spend a lot of time on video conferencing, uh, uh technology and software. And obviously we use webcams to broadcast each Wednesday night. Um, and Logitech cams are either sold out or are twice, three, four times the price than they were before. And so seeing that experience has also told me that you know, we're going to obviously have to figure out a way to make sure that major digital retailers like Amazon have some protections built into place to make sure the consumers aren't sold goods that aren't worth the money or aren't, you know, gouged by many, 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 many times over. So... Uh, Wes, out of curiosity, uh, any opportunity recently to look for a product that you felt unsafe buying it online because of fakes? No, I mean, it's, you know, we've, we've used some masks that have been made by folks that we know. Um, we're not using anything yeah, too. here that has a filter, you know, just the cloth ones. Uh, and actually we're kind of living in, in a land that, you know, Depending on where you go, I mean, if you go to Costco, as we did today, everybody's wearing a mask. And if you go to Andy's uh, ice cream, as we did night before last, you know, we were the only ones that were there wearing masks. But, um, you know, I, I, I haven't done a lot of searches where this has come about. Um, I mean, I'm we're continuing to, to get most of our groceries via delivery I mean, in terms of safety and stuff That's like true. that. I have just, um, you know, I, I really when in searching masks and seeing what was available on Amazon. Um, that's the main place where that's kind of come up. And I didn't order anything, but having seen some articles and heard some headlines uh, about that. So how about you? Have you um, to turn that question? 
Back well, to- I, I did consider buying some. There is a there is a variety of N95, N95 masks that's called KN95, and the KN95 mask, if I understand correctly, is built to the same standards, but it's not the N95 mask. And uh, I think one of the major differences is that they've not been uh, fully vetted by the Food and Drug Administration, is my understanding of, of the KN95 mask. But a retailer that I do trust, uh, Monoprice, it has acquired uh, a producer producer of N95 masks to be able to, or of KN95 masks, I've considered buying some, but I'm too, am using a a, uh, sewed up mask from a a friend of my wife's that downloaded the plans from the the CDC and then sewed up mask. Mine's a pirate mask, so it's got little pirate skulls on it, so. Excellent, that is fantastic. There you go. Okay, where to next? Well, I, we're not going to dive deeply into politics, but last two weeks ago, <clears throat> uh, when we last came to you on May 27th, um, there had been a really significant, you know, interaction between our our president and Twitter talking about, you know, them labeling one of his tweets misinformation, and um, I dropped. I hadn't shared this one, but it it was from the 26th of uh, May. This was NPR Newshour. And the title of this is How Trump Leverages Twitter to Spread Misinformation. Um, there's, you know, we, we have not seen, to my knowledge, I mean, we, we had an executive order, I guess, that was passed, but people were questioning whether that was, you know, going to have any, any kind of impact on Twitter. But the, the idea that we might have some legislation and, and you know, what are we going to see actually Congress do or, or the FCC regulatory bodies do um, that might, in, you know, affect what the the companies are doing on their own in terms of self-regulation. I dropped a a link to a tweet that I actually just saw before the show that I labeled Twitter encourages reading before sharing. And so this was actually shared by the official Twitter support, uh, you know, account. Oh, how do I know that? It's because uh, it is a verified account. And uh, this was shared on uh, June the 10th. So on today, or it was shared today at one 1.23 p.m. And this was just some friendly advice. They say, sharing an article can spark conversation. So you may want to read it before you tweet it to help promote informed discussion. We're testing a new prompt on Android. When you retweet an article that you haven't opened on Twitter, we may ask if you'd like to open it first. So... Dr. Neifer, do you think this is a good thing for Twitter to be encouraging reading before retweeting? I, I do. And it's funny because this is a, it's been a couple of years since, uh, you know, there have been some kind of famous, uh, pranks on people that will post without reading, like the inflammatory headline and people retweet or post it on Facebook. And then you read the article and the article itself says, listen, uh, th- this is a fake article, right? Like, and part of the point here is that someone shared this article, uh, that you then clicked on and didn't realize really what they were sharing. I think it's extremely important and, and actually a real problem with social media platforms. The fact that, you know, I, I, I think both of us find a lot of value in our, you know, our, our, our social media families and colleagues, right? Right. It's, it's, they're the, one of the best curators of news that have ever existed, human curation of stuff. And so if I want to find out more about ed technology, it's not 
uh, it's not going to a website. I go to Twitter and, and follow 10, 15, 20, 50 people that I trust. And usually I can get the day's news on ed tech from there. Right. But that also means though, that that medium being shared, you know, people want to share. People want to express themselves through the things that they share. And I think the phenomenon of, of retweeting, um, or, t- or tweeting an article without reading it is pretty significant. And, uh, I'm glad that they're going to, um, uh, 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 do that because I think people should read before they retweet. Peggy George, who's in our chat room. Hello, Peggy. Uh, asks if Twitter is just screening for virus related articles. I am, I am not sure, but my sense has been that they're amping up, um, that screening. And of course, one of the big things about our president and being subject to some, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't censored, right? It wasn't taken down, but there was, there were, there were some extra resources that you could get there. You know, Twitter has had kind of a different standard for, let's say, chief executive officers of major, you know, first world countries. Um, and so that we, I think we talked about that on the show last time, saying that that's probably a, a good, in, a good thing. Um, Peggy is also saying, yes, she's found a, a lot of misinformation on Nextdoor. <laughs> if you're not yes. up in your neighborhood, please download the Nextdoor app and start reading a lot because there's all kinds of things. Also, if you'd like to be scared, because there are, there, there are almost certainly, I don't know about Montana, maybe not. Montana may be a haven with no crime, but <clears throat> here in Oklahoma City, you know, when you open up the Nextdoor app, you are going to learn yeah. about you know, crime that's happening, which there's, as with a lot of things, there's a balance there, right? It's good to have uh, some knowledge, but um, Barb, who is there in the, in the uh, chat room on Facebook, hello, Barb, uh, says they're trying to, yeah, stop the retweeting of fake news. Yep. So anyway, it, this is, this is self-regulation. This is responses of the tech companies to, you know, what is, is happening and they're, you know, they, they don't want to be regulated by government. Um you know, this is, uh, and, and what, here's a question I have for you, Jason. Have you thought about quitting Twitter? I've seen Richard Byrne in the last two weeks say something about this and some other people too. I am not finding my feed to be this toxic cesspool, but I usually don't spend a lot of time on the home feed. I usually go to lists and, you know, I am, I am filtering my feed. So I'm not just, there's a lot of folks that I follow and, and I do follow, you know, journalists and, and news people. So have, have you been tempted in these recent you know weeks to just abandon Twitter and, and cash cash in your chips? It's funny you should mention that because I was probably five minutes last week from from at least shutting it down for a bit because it was wow. becoming too much for me. And I wouldn't say that my Twitter feed is toxic. I, what I would say is that there's certainly some things. Uh, about it that I don't really enjoy, but, uh, last week was a tough week for, you know, frankly, America, right? And the news was coming a million miles an hour, and I didn't always feel like the conversations that were happening on Twitter, and I know Barb mentioned in, in the chat that, that a lot of, a lot more people are talking about getting out of Facebook. Uh, Facebook is a little different for me in that I've tried really hard to keep politics out of Facebook. Uh, politics can really work any, anything that's not personal, and so it's still, still Largely photos, uh, uh, photos and, photos and fun cats, personal stuff. Yeah, you have cats and their kids and people hiking and mountains and, and travel photos. At least for me. But when things do get political, it's not super great either. Uh, uh, but like I, I really. Um, 
Twitter became a, a little toxic for me last week. And it's not about which conversations, because to be honest, uh, I think there's a, a, a there's a lot of very uh, there's a lot of very important things are being discussed right now in social media. In in it, it it clearly feels like that our nation is at a crossroads. Um, uh, uh, that, uh, and I think that's being expressed very much on, on social media feeds. But yeah, I did, uh, strongly consider that. Um, I want to mention, you mentioned something, um, uh, Wes, that, that leads to another article. Uh, it's, it's from The Verge on, on Tuesday, June 8th. I'm sorry, Monday, June 8th. That Twitter is working to bring back account verification. And they noted the article is really interesting because it talks about, well, first of all, uh, a, a why account verification is important. Um, but secondarily, why they stopped doing it a few years back. And I remember vaguely talking about this, and we might have actually talked about this in the podcast back then, but they stopped doing it except for uh, political candidates. That's one place where they absolutely will take on um, a, a verification because they want to make sure that people aren't aren't uh, uh, spreading uh, a, a misinformation uh, via someone's name, right? That's not labeling it a parody account. But they are talking about bringing it back. And one of the things they say on there was one of the reasons they got rid of it in the first place was that they felt like it was a, a an endless time suck of human resources. And it, it, for me, that keeps highlighting why this is so challenging because there is a, obviously a shocking number of tweets. I, I have no idea, you know, uh, where in the, in the billions of tweets that are sent a day. Uh, uh, but the bottom line is, is that there are a lot of conversations that are going on. Um, there's a lot of, of, of things that are happening that it would be useful to know if the actors are that who they say they are. And, you know, it, not a, a day or week goes by that I don't run into an article that talks about how, you know, a particularly incendiary tweet, a particularly inflammatory comment on Twitter ends up getting kicked up and retweeted a lot. And that a certain percentage, high percentage, 40, 50, 60 percent of those are actually, you know, known bots that are doing that. And that that's extraordinary to me. Um, and I, you know, I'm under no illusion that me and my 7,000 followers, which has been that I've been in that number for four or five years, just seem to be going up. That's fine. I don't, I don't, I'm not on Twitter to broadcast. I'm there to connect with, with, uh, 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 a community of people, but I can't imagine that, that, uh, I will get verified, but I do think it's important. The, the larger you're following or the more you're involved in, in conversations, uh, in the broad community that you are verified. Well, great segue to more conversations about media literacy and bots. So we actually do have those tonight under the social media's headline. Um, I'll first go to an NPR article from June 1st, false rumors and doctored images went viral during the DC protests. And, you know, it's been a little while since, um, well, a little while, not, not that long. This was last week, but, uh, the hashtag, um, uh, DC blackout, uh, was starting to, uh, trend and <clears throat> what, uh, researchers and, and journalists also identified was the fact that bot accounts were being utilized to share thousands and thousands of, of tweets with this hashtag. And so they were creating a false impression trying to get mainstream journalists to act to validate it by, you know, putting the message out there that indeed communication, cell towers, things like that in the Washington DC area had been shut down and, and that the government was, was closing down the internet in the United States of America in our capital. 
Not true. In addition, this article highlights this photo, uh, which showed a massive fire right beside the Washington Monument. Well, it turns out that was from, uh, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> it was from a pilot episode of an, a fictional ABC show called Designated Survivor. And um, so that was, you know, something that, that somebody, you know, grabbed off of of their device and put out there um, reminds me of the war in Syria. Most recently, I guess, uh, where and I think we talked about this, you know, this was months ago on the show, how challenging it is during an actual war for journalists to verify when, you know, images were, were taken, video footage was shot. Is that even from that war zone? You talked earlier in tonight's show about meta information and privacy. You know, sometimes those telltale things can, you know, be embedded in the media and there's ways to verify, but it's really, really tricky and really, really hard. And so in the midst of not only, of course, a global pandemic, but now, you know, these nationwide protests and a crisis and people are glued to their screens even more so. Um, two things. Number one, we all need to be back to that idea of read before you tweet. Uh, the, the whole media literacy framework of SIFT starts with S stop. We need to stop. In addition to reading the articles, you know, we especially if it's really inflammatory or it's just really charged. I mean, we, we all have a responsibility and this is something that I don't, I don't think we're all stepping up to at this point and acknowledging, but this is where we got to talk about this as teachers, as well as parents and whatever roles we have, we've got responsibilities when we are resharing things. And so rather than just, Oh my gosh, you know, let me reshare that. It's time to pause and and check some things out and and maybe not you know just immediately pass along that um, that image or that article and so I actually um, had first put in this article from Slate from June 8th this is excellent it's called confused about screen time and disinformation you are not alone and the author Lisa Guernsey says that the antidote to all of this are media literacy educators. She calls them, um, you know, she says we need more trail maps and flashlights, digital media mentors, trusted digital navigators, real people who can guide us through this churning media landscape. We need librarians, educators, and local communication experts who know how to help students, parents, and members of the public gain a deeper understanding of how media is made, who's behind the messages, their motivation, etc. So we've talked about the weaponization of social media. We've talked about how that has happened in elections. We've talked about, you know, the ways in which we all need to be savvy and aware of this, that there are entities, some of these are nation states like Russia, uh, who are explicitly working to uh, try and amplify and fan the flames of division and, um, you know, d divisiveness and, and increased polarization and those kinds of things. So, yes, I agree, Barb, media literacy is more important than ever. Um any well, and then the other thing I'd say, in addition to that, is media diet. You know, I'm in a, a, a men's group that at 49, I am the one of the younger or youngest. I might be the youngest member of our group, uh, which I love. It's it's great to hang out with these guys, and they're actually a very conservative bunch, and so that's that's interesting. Um, but you know, several of them, and we have a leadership group that meets. Um, you know, once a week to kind of plan, like talk about this week, getting folks down from seeing the news. 
we all need to have a diet when it comes to media. None of us need to be ingesting and imbibing a, a, a limitless quantity of media in any form. And that's part of what this article that Lisa Guernsey writes is we've got to make sure we're not being just overwhelmed and, and doing things that are not healthy for ourselves, you know, COVID and, and George Floyd protests and things like that aside. Um, but, but those things also amplify it. So what is your wisdom, Dr. Neifer, coming to us as you are from the mountaintop in Montana? What's a, what's a good media diet guideline? Or have you come up with something that helps you in, in times such as these? Well, I mean, I guess I would say to, to start off with, um, you know, I, it, one of the biggest problems, I think, with cell phones, the screens are small, uh, right, which is not necessarily bad. I think these are more portable, but... I notice a lot of times you can start reading an article and never look at either where the article is from or who is writing the article. Like I think that the, the devices sometimes, especially in a world where they're trying to pack more information on a screen that you can go right to the, the text without first considering, um, you know, who, who is writing it. And I know what I love about the article that, that, that you're talking about is the notion of, uh, uh, librarians being important. And I would say n- at no time in our history have we needed librarians more than, than 2020 with the variety of sources that are available. But, um, I think part of this is, is that we just have to be really cognizant of, of where we're getting our information from. And then if it's important or it's, it's causing you any stress, use all the rules available to you to help help verify whether or not that's a real article or not. And I got to say, I get pulled into this quite a bit too, in part because um, I, I'm sure that everyone uh, has a great recommendation for, you know, like what types of uh, media apps that, that, that they use to, to look at the news. One of them I really like a lot is Smart News. It's an app. I think it's on both iOS and uh, uh, Android. But the problem with Smart News that I keep running into is that um, it starts like there's a there's a, a tab for uh, top news. And one of the things I've noticed is that for every article from a source I've heard from, and I just open up Smart News, UPI, ABC News, um, uh, the Daily Mail, KPAX, which is a, a local television station, um, you know, these are all recognized sources to me, but then uh, also in the top news is uh, Chinese state uh, media, um, uh, the, the grunge. I don't know what grunge is. Uh, it's it's, a, it's an article about Aerosmith. I'm not sure why that's a top article, but it apparently is the blog, the kitchen um, uh, health day, uh, you know, sources that are, are well short of mainstream sources, something called America, American military news, which I don't know that as a source either, but these are kind of all mixed into this aggregation, right? And these are, that's a problem. Okay. I want to, I want to show something here live. I don't usually do this as far as a screen share, but, uh, doing a little investigation, uh, to this smart news. So, a little screen share here. Ooh, isn't that fun? Uh, so I, I just Googled <clears throat> smart news app. Okay, let's check it out. First thing, smart news on the Google Play Store. Second thing, smart news on the iOS App Store. <clears throat> We've got some top stories, but then we get to a Business Insider article, and then this looks official. A smart news link from 2014. Smart news offers innovative news discovery app. So I'm going to click on it here and all right, this is in English. This is from 2014. 
I'm going to go up to the top of the screen and I'm going to cut off the, the rest of the link. So I'm just going to go to the link about.smartnews.com. And so let's just check this out. Ah, whoa, what's this? Well, it's in Japanese. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad. Um, that's definitely the app, though. I mean, I recognize the, the screenshot. App. This is the app. So I've apparently just seen that that this is an app originating from Japan. And, um, you know, this here. what a great media literacy little challenge. I'll stop our screen share here so we'll not all go freaky crazy there. Um but, you know, those kinds of teachable moments and being yeah. able to investigate and let's go because, folks, we live in the hack or be hacked world. Right. Um, what's the what's the book uh, by uh, by Douglas uh, Rushkoff uh, program or be programmed? Uh, you know, the algorithms are all around us. Our students need to be aware. We need to be aware that this kind of filtering and 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 and, dec and decision making about what's news, what's not news, oftentimes is done for money. It's done because you know folks are paying pay to play. Um, but you know these algorithms are super powerful, and and what we what we want in the spirit of Neil Postman, you know, amusing ourselves to death, technopoly, teaching is a subversive activity. You know, you want to do some summer reading, read some Neil Postman. I should just break that out. We should do a, a summer read, even though most of what he was doing was critiquing a pre-internet era. You know, Postman says we all need crap detectors and we need to be critical thinkers. And so these are skills that we need to have and recognize, uh, you know, what is the audience? Again, media literacy, what's the purpose? And then who is the group that is creating it? So maybe we'll do a little more investigation into the smart news app because, you know, there are we need these tools. We need tools that help us filter our feeds. Um, I continue to enjoy lists on on Twitter because, you know, when you go to your home screen, Twitter decides based not only on what you have liked and who you follow, but also things that it wants to prioritize. And we don't know. This is opaque because we can't see the code that decides, you know, what we see in our feed. Uh, we're seeing a, a filtered feed that's based on the algorithm, much like with Facebook, uh, same sort of thing. You know, it's going to give some priority to things that you have liked and, and clicked on and commented on and, and all of that sort of stuff. But I personally really like tools, which I find Twitter lists to still be, that give me basically an unfiltered list of things that have been shared by these trusted, you know, sources. And so good stuff. Hey, man, it's it's 45 minutes after the hour. Where does the time go? What were we thinking, man? We skipped a week. This is crazy. You're going to have to go two hours. No, we're not going to. But and We're going to go all night long tonight. Um, well, it's should we all nighter with Ed Tickett. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do I that. I did that once as an adult. Not a good plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all nighters have, have long since not been a, a phenomenon for me. So I didn't sleep enough. In or I didn't sleep enough. I did not. Well, I didn't sleep very much in college is what I'm trying to say. So. Uh, let's maybe jump into some hard news and uh, hard news, uh, maybe more direct tech news, right? Um, I, there's some Apple things I want to talk about, and I really have been looking forward to your opinion, Wes, on uh, rumors this week that uh, at WWDC this year, that's the Worldwide Developer Conference, that Apple's going to reveal plans for using its own chip in Macs, and there's apparently a an iMac running around that I've, I've read several uh, accounts of this 
this. It's all rumors at this point, but I think it's interesting to think about and speculate about. But it's an iMac with, you know, the typical large iMac screen, super thin bezel, super thin device. But the reason why it's interesting is because uh, uh, it would be an Apple manufactured chip that probably would be, you know, outside of the Intel architecture, which means they'd be going towards the ARM-ish architecture, uh, which is what powers, you know, the iPad. It powers the... Um, uh, uh, powers the, the iPhone and, uh, the A, I think it's A, they're up to A15. Are, are those really ARM? Cause it's like the A13, but is that what that stands for? Uh, well, no, it stands for Apple, but I think it's ARM architecture. Now I, I could it's be totally speaking out of my ear here. But... I'm not an expert on chips either, yeah. but I think that the ARM architecture is actually a, a different manufacturer and somebody in the chat room can Google that if they want. Um, but yeah, it's the, it's the, they're Apple made ships. Right. Well, and, super super exciting. I mean, well, um, wow. The thing I would say is that that that's super interesting to me about this is that uh, well, first of all, that if they are going to go to this architecture, uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is power savings because that's part of the point of. Um, you know, the iPad and the iPhone utilizing, uh, these mobile chips is because they are powerhouses. Uh, and I remember when, I think it was the, when the A10 was first announced on the iPhone that a lot of people are talking about this is a, a, a desktop class chip, even though it was in a mobile device, but it, they're powerful without much, uh, uh, electricity use, which I think is a really interesting phenomenon. But one of the things I do remember is when Apple transitioned from the PowerPC platform to the Intel platform, um, I know they've been planning it for years. Uh, in fact, I recently rewatched the announcement of that because it popped up on my YouTube feed and that was interesting to me. And they'd actually been running Intel chips for several years in house, uh, uh, on OS 10 to try to, uh, kind of keep up and make sure they could make the transition. But it was a bit of a bumpy transition because they did have to push new code bases and the operating system itself, uh, had to evolve and they did lose an older class of app that eventually was not supported on OS 10. And so, uh, you know, Apple tends to be a little less like Windows, and then there are definitely third-party uh, uh, app developers for Apple, but they tend to utilize the, the Mac App Store. They tend to be uh, uh, worldwide developer certified partners, whereas it's kind of a free-for-all in the Windows. But Wes, do you worry at all the compatibility might become an issue if they do move towards these, these Apple created chips instead of Intel chips? I think they'll have a good transition plan. I mean, so many of the things that we're using now, uh, you know, developers are, are able to, to make them work on multiple devices. In fact, that's part of my story of going, you know, Android for nine months. I mean, it was, I, I had a low end phone, right? So if I wanted to have a more comparable experience, I should have, you know, gotten a pixel or whatever, but in terms of apps and function, uh, and even though it was a low end phone, it was, it was fine. So I don't, I don't think that will be as much of an issue as far as compatibility. Um, you know, I, it reminds me of the iPhone and what's happening now with the SE. So a couple members of our family have stepped up from the iPhone 6S and jumped all the way to the SE. And the SE runs the A13 Bionic, which is the same processor that's in the top tier iPhone, uh, you know, iPhone 11 Pro. And, uh, wow, what a processor. So, um, I think this is a bit of a reflection of Moore's law. And I don't know if it's that we're re reaching a plateau, but like, 
I don't know, how much processing power do you need to have in your pocket, you know, in order, because like even with our, our daughter, who's, you know, I guess 19, um, <laughs> I mean, the main thing they're noticing is battery, actually. Uh, the battery is just so much better in this iPhone SE compared to that 6S. And yeah, it's a little faster and the camera's a little better, but that doesn't change your life every day. Uh, and so I think the fact that these processors are getting so, so powerful. I mean, I don't know about others, but I actually prefer generally editing video now on a mobile device. I've got iMovie and I have, you know, it just, it depends on how big it is. And here at the end of the, of the school year, I ended up, you know, I editing some, some, uh, different things that we recorded that were end of year. Things I, but you know, especially when it's quick stuff, it's so fast to do on the mobile process on the mobile device, and the processor's so fast that it's it's fantastic. So, Peggy's asking in the chat if I think the SE is better than the 11. I mean, it's definitely cheaper, right? I mean, 399 is the entry point. Um, we jumped up to 128 gig instead of 64, which I think tacked on an extra 50 bucks, uh, which I think is a good idea. Um, so from a price point standpoint, I mean, it's way better for an 11. I'm pretty sure you're paying a thousand dollars. So it's going to be less than half the cost. But, um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, do you want to pick up that other Apple article too about the uh, iTunes U? That one, that one's actually a little more troubling, but sure. This is, well, the reason why I thought this one was so interesting, um, is that, uh, so Apple's announced that they will be, uh, shelving iTunes U, which is their, uh, media hosting platform that, uh, works with iTunes. Um, although iTunes itself, um, has, uh, started kind of slowly devolving and then splitting into multiple apps, et cetera, but they're putting their attention on, uh, the classroom app, which is their, uh, kind of their education product right now. But I guess the headline for me here was that iTunes U was still in existence because I have been, I've been, I'm involved with at least three institutions that at one point were kind of all in on iTunes U, but with, you know, infinite numbers of places to host content and distribute content in a, in a media rich environment, iTunes U has started to make less sense because you can really uh, host content in a lot of places that are easily accessible. And so, um, you know, uh, Apple tends to be very Apple-y in the way they do classroom stuff in that it's not, uh, it's not really accessible outside the Apple universe. So if you're going to pull off, uh, utilizing, for example, the classroom app, the best way to do that is to have, you know, one-to-one Apple devices, right? That's really the only way you can pull that off. But, um, I guess, you know, back to you, Wes, uh, uh, are you still working with or near any institutions that are utilizing that platform? No, not really. Peggy's uh, put into the chat a little earlier that, you know, all the Classroom 2.0 live videos are on iTunes U. And to be clear, in that case, I'm pretty sure uh, Apple was hosting those, too. So it wasn't just pointing right. when you're like for our podcast, for instance, Apple doesn't host our podcast. They list it. But it's actually like I, I hosted we hosted on Amazon S3 on the S3 cloud for uh, for Amazon. So um hopefully they're going to provide a migration tool for this, right? Because that can be very time consuming to yeah. even the up, the upload download. I mean, one of the nice things about a podcast or content in iTunes U is you can download things quickly, right? If you've got all this content in a feed, there's a button that says download all and boom, you can just, you know, pull it all down. Uh, but anyway, that's going to be a process for folks to think about. Um, 
this is one of, I'll say this and Hey, I'm wearing my Apple shirt today. Uh, I've been to Cupertino a couple times. I didn't plan that. Um, so I became an Apple distinguished educator in 2005 and there, there were a few different things over the course of years that concerned me about if I said this, was I going to, you know, be, be basically cast out into the darkness where the, the gnashing of teeth and, you know, the people who are rejected by the Apple group. I was a little worried about that. I might have even written some blog posts, uh, with an alias on, you know, on my own blog for a while because I was talking about <clears throat> things that might not have been blessed by Apple. I am not a big fan of iTunes U. I never have been. Uh, the Apple rep that we've had for years here in Oklahoma actually has just left and moved down to Texas. But, you know, he tried for years to get our State Department of Education, iTunes U portal, all this stuff. The article you put in, you know, iTunes U hasn't had an up, a substantial update or revision since 2017. Um, why am I not excited about iTunes U? It's because it's it's just locked in the Apple ecosystem. And as much as I love Macs and Apple, you know, Jason, you've got far more screens than than really 99.9% of America. <laughs> so he is an outlier. But, I mean, I've got all kinds of, 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 of Apple devices. We've got iPads. We've got watches. Hey, man, I've got a shirt on tonight. Um, but even with all that Apple love, we live in a world where families and just people are not all in a, on a single platform. And so being somebody who's a real advocate for accessibility and for um, the idea that we should be mobile and adaptable in terms of where we're consuming content and where we're creating it, et cetera, um, I have never been super excited about the idea that you have to be running a, an Apple device in order to get this content. I just thought, you know, for schools that are uh, like, I'm thinking of Putnam city where they've got, you know, here in Oklahoma city area, I mean, they've got like over 15,000 iPads, I think deployed K 12. I think they're all in on that platform uh, with textbooks and lots of things. So that may prove to be a substantial challenge. And 2021 is the date they say in that article that they're going to be transitioning. So yeah, that's going to pose some challenges. But I will also say this. I'm excited to see what Apple is going to continue to do with their classroom app. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because we were not one to one, but but we all just we went BYOD, you know, within the span of about a week here in March when we couldn't go back to school and we had to do remote learning for the rest of the school year. And so we basically are using iPads pretty intensively with our younger kids. And then we transition more to a Chrome browser and, and laptops, you know, with middle and high school. It's going to be interesting to see where this goes and also to think about the IT support side of all of this. But I mean, whenever somebody comes up with a new app or they're investing, you know, new creativity, there's hopefully an opportunity for them to design it well and, and to do things even better than they've been done before. And of course, here I'm thinking about Google Classroom and the way that Google facilitates the management of classes, empowers teachers to be able to spin up their own classes readily and either you know, have kids join directly or, or use join codes, all that kind of stuff, which Jason, I know you are very familiar with as you continue to manage distance learning environments and, you know, memberships and, you know, back in what, 2001, 2002, right? With WebCT at Texas Tech. And we were trying to, somebody had a custom script with a CSV so we could grab enrollments at this one little time and throw all the kids into their WebCT and, there's a lot of, of mechanation that goes around and, and schools still do. We, we may hopefully adapt or adopt 
uh, clever this summer um, to try to help with rostering and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm excited to see what Apple's going to do, but it is definitely going to lead to some work for people that don't want to see their content go away. And Classroom 2.0 Live is, is an example of that. Yep, absolutely. And while you're mentioning uh, iTunes U, we did have our state uh, education department did have an iTunes U uh, account at one point who posted a, a number of videos there. University of Montana did at one point. But why I loved iTunes U wasn't because of the possibilities of pushing out. It was because there were a lot of great institutions that pushed out. UC uh, Berkeley's history department had full courses available. And there I learned so much when I was teaching AP European history. Uh, at Capitol High School uh, in my classroom days, I learned so much in the summertime listening to amazing lectures by uh, uh, really amazing historians at UC Berkeley uh, on their iTunes U account. And a lot of that has migrated um, uh, to YouTube, but uh, at the same time, uh, interesting stuff. Uh, let me do qu two quick hit articles, and then I think we are at the top of the hour. So. Yep. Sadly, this this fest of uh, catching up on the news is going to have to come to an end. Uh, hey, thanks so much to Barb and, and Peggy for commenting so much on our chat room. I think we've had as active a chat room tonight as we ever have. And I love here with uh, with StreamYard that we continue to use, you know, the ability to, to put those up on the screen. Uh, so a couple quick ones. <laughs> this was the BBC on June the 4th. Gaming hero retires at 23. Yes, you heard me say that right. The age of 23 due to ill health. And this isn't a name familiar to me, Jason, but if we live in, lived in China, uh, the article says China's most famous esports player, Zhang Zhao, has officially retired from gaming aged 23, citing ill health. He had been a professional gamer since 2012, playing Leagues of Legends under the name Uzi. Uh, his decision to quit was announced on Chinese social media site Weibo, where he has 5 million followers. Uh, gaming is seen as a big addiction problem in China. The government often links to ill health. And speaking of sleep uh, or not sleeping, you know, and, and just, you know, having poor nutritional habits and other things, that was evidently a part of his lifestyle. And so he has given it up. So hopefully he has made enough money in the first 23 years of his life that <laughs> You know, he'll be set or who knows, who knows what's going to be next for him. And then another quick one. This is Ars Technica. <clears throat> we could probably talk a lot about this, uh, which we won't have time to, but lawsuit over online book lending could bankrupt Internet Archive. This is from Timothy Lee writing on June the 1st. And this is this is really fascinating from a copyright standpoint, because until COVID, what libraries were doing was lending electronic versions of books that they physically had copies of or they had bought licensed copies of, right? Uh, this reminds me of Nicholas Negroponte's wonderful book. I think it's a 2001 book, Being Digital. He talks about the power of converting from analog to digital because once you convert to zeros and ones, if you've got the hardware and we've got the internet, hey, it, it costs almost nothing, you know, to, to, to share things for free over the internet. And so anyway, what... Some libraries, uh, including the Internet Archive Library, have been doing since COVID is just saying, hey, can't go to the library. We're just going to loan out as many copies of, of this as we have. And so book, uh, book publishers have gotten mad about this and they have filed a lawsuit. It'd be a super bummer if Internet Archive goes offline. I used it just this week to pull off uh, an old version of a web page that I had made in 2005 that, you know, I don't have online anymore. If you don't use the Wayback Machine, by the way, it's a fantastic tool. 
So anyway, thoughts about this, Jason? Do you think the imminent demise of the Internet Archive is going to lead to, uh, you know, a, a massive uh, outpouring of uh, is, is this going to happen? I mean, do I even need to worry about it? Well, I, I it looks like I mean, I, I obviously just get, you know, uh, uh, scanned through this article very quickly while you were speaking. And it looks like that that they're going to put up a healthy fight uh, to try to claim the pandemic exception for this to try to at least uh, get to a point where they can negotiate this out without killing uh, uh, the Internet archive. But it's 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 one of the best website concepts ever. Like, I love it. Not only does it have uh, an extraordinary library of digital books that you really couldn't find anywhere else, a lot of these books are books that there is no commercial value in saving, right? So one of the things I love to do is I love old cookbooks. Uh, I'm a cooking guy. I love to cook. I like to learn about new ways to do things. And there's a really great subreddit called Old Recipes uh, that I love a lot where people will find like old index cards their grandmother filled out in, you know, the 40s uh, with with her pizza dough recipe or something along those lines. But the old cookbooks available on uh, uh, the uh, Internet Archive are extraordinary. And I would be sad. Not only do I love the Wayback Machine for finding old websites, uh, that it's a really extraordinary part of, of I think, being a, a, a deep researcher on the Internet. But the the library itself is really pretty amazing. Yeah. And it also points to how copyright law needs to be revised, right? Because yeah, absolutely. The, the individual violations here are what's going to lead into the millions and millions of dollars and just, you know, be crazy. And so anyway, will we ever get there? I don't know. Elect, you know, political reform in the United States is a tough puzzle. And there are some bigger issues that politicians are trying to deal with now other than copyright. But I'm not going to hold my breath to think that that's going to be legally, you know, resolved anytime soon. Well, it is after the top of the hour. Dr. Neifer, do you have some geeks of the week? Yeah, uh, I just want to point out, this is a channel I I, I shared earlier in the year, but uh, something interesting is happening. The market for used computers is dramatically increasing in price. And I keep an eye on that in part because I, you know, like to buy older computers uh, uh, because I'm a geek. But um, uh, I I was noticing the other day that uh, Chromebooks, uh, uh, good Chromebooks that a year or two ago, two or three year old premium Chromebooks are usually really extraordinary values because you can get uh, three to five years out of them and yet they're super fast and, and oftentimes don't hold their value. But I've noticed that these have started to go up in price. But also uh, there is a massive trade in older Apple products. And I shared this YouTube channel earlier uh, this year, but uh, Luke Miani is a popular YouTube guy that talks about the used Mac market. Um, and there's a subreddit that goes along with it with a lot of folks that talk about buying old used Macs. But something that Luke has been doing that's been super interesting is that He'll take even damaged uh, uh, MacBooks and uh, pull them apart, right? And these are not repairable, right? That's the interesting thing about a lot of Apple stuff is that they're usually not considered to be like end user repairable. But he's taken, uh, you know, bargain basement uh, four parts uh, uh, MacBooks on eBay and turned them into, you know, good usable products. And I do happen to have an old Mac Pro sitting in my house that that uh, he has some specific advice to turn that into something as fast as the iMac Pro, which is a very fast machine. 
Um, so that is one upgrade I'm considering doing. And then I do have my infamous uh, MacBook Air, uh, 11-inch MacBook Air that lost a battle with a cup of coffee in 2014. I haven't found it. It's somewhere in a box in my house. But when I do, I'm going to pull it apart and see if I can repair it and bring back that love and feeling. Uh, it was the day, in fact, it was the beginning of the end of me for Apple products because I just couldn't afford at that time to buy something to replace it. And I was terrified to send it into Apple and my, my cat is getting uh, fired about something. But um, uh, I'm going to do it. And Luke Miani and his uh, kind of crew of Apple fixers are going to help me. So look me on a YouTube channel and then the subreddit. Fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, back in the day, we're we're getting to be some old geezers here talking about 20 years ago and all this stuff. But, you know, uh, I remember, you know, there was the markets for things when when Apple devices were more home repairable. There were things that you could get to, hey, you know, get a new processor, uh, not just RAM, but, you know, replace some of the guts and whatever. So obviously that has that has changed and is different but uh so my geeks of the week uh you know we haven't done these for for a couple of weeks so i'm gonna have to share several things this first one comes from carl hooker i got to see uh him do a presentation oh i guess i did the whole link there it's app.classroomscreen.com uh carl did a keynote i guess this was monday uh in lubbock texas uh lubbock lubbock cooper school district um, this is a really cool site. I'd never seen it before. And basically you can just bring this up in your classroom. Uh, and, and it was, it started, I think, to basically have like a timer and a stopwatch. But, you know, you can do some other things, um, with, with text, with QR codes, with dice, uh, picking a random name. So it's just kind of like a screen that you'd use, but then you've got classroom tools that you can use. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I went ahead on Sunday and recorded a little video. I've been using my iPad to, uh, put together my slideshows. I had, uh, my last Sunday school class of the, of the year, uh, the term and taking the summer off. Uh, but I've just been doing like all iPad on my slideshow and I use icons from the noun project as well as images from Unsplash and other places. But anyway, a little seven minute, uh, video and that is on my blog, which I don't, you know, tend to publish certainly every day. I used to do that, you know, for a while. What was I thinking back then? Uh, but anyway, every, you know, every week or so I put something out. And then the very last thing, this I'm really excited about. A lot of us, uh, are looking at professional development for the summer. Uh, in fact, right now there's a great conference going on that, uh, Google certified teachers in Kansas are doing and it's a multi day. I got to uh, tune into a session yesterday and today I wasn't able to. But anyway, uh, you know, there's live professional development, but there's, of course, lots of archived uh, professional development. And so thanks to the Media Club that is part of the Digital Literacy Summer Institute that was a spinoff of that, um, I learned about this. And this this was a conference that was held in spring called Memes, the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism. But it's YouTube video. It's entirely free. Um, I... I need and I want to do a media literacy lesson on memes, um, partly because, you know, there are some things that just aren't funny. And even kids that are young and, and in my case, you know, fifth and sixth graders in middle school. Wow. The things that they're exposed to and potentially are dealing with online via social media and, and you know, via uh, not just phones, but just the Web. Uh, there's a whole lot to talk about there. So anyway, a conference that is free, that was archived, that I would recommend to folks. So Dr. Neifer, when you are not having a laser show take place right behind you on a Wednesday night, where else can people find you on the 
universe of, of digital ones and zeros? Well, I'm on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach, where I like to connect with people that like to make change happen in education. I also blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncce.org. Um, and I also would give another shout out to the Mountain Moot. Mid-July this year, I'm hoping to get Wes to attend, maybe even do a presentation. It's free this year. It's still the best small conference in the country. Uh, I would recommend coming to it if you are in any way Moodle engaged. But this year, uh, it, like in a, a couple of past years, is they're doing their best to try to make it more ed tech focused because they want to get teachers in virtual rooms together to talk about how we're going to make remote teaching work if we need to go back to that this fall. mtmoot.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, we what about are you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I'm online. <laughs> at W Fryer, and then my blog is speedofcreativity.org. I will say, maybe I can throw this down and do it. I have got to get my virtual iPad media camp and make media camp for July up and out there. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna commit. I'll just commit right now on the show. I'm doing remote learning versions of each one. So, uh, I've done iPad media camps for about 10 years, which were three day face to face experiences. But <clears throat> anyway, that's going to be coming soon. And you can find that at, uh, well, just follow me on Twitter is the best way, but I have a make media camp. I think it's com and then iPad media camp.com are two domains that I registered a while back and I will be updating those with some new stuff. So, uh, the Moodle Moot again link, Jason, what was that? Uh, mtmoot.com. Mtmoot. Because if you are a moodler, then you know you know about ints and moots. So. And I just lied to you. It's mountainmoot.com. Oh, mountainmoot. See, you got to be careful. See, somebody somebody knows that. Yeah. Anyway, that that, that happens sometimes. People register <laughs> domains because oh, maybe a politician or somebody famous is going to say this. Well, thank you all so much for joining us again. Special thanks to our chat room tonight for lots of great commentary, and we want to encourage everybody to go to edtechsr.com where you can download very small, thirty-two kilobit audio versions of uh, smaller, circa one hundred and something meg, um, you know, compressed video versions of maybe 36p, 360p, 36p. Anyway, smaller video versions. You can also just subscribe on YouTube. Let us know uh, if you listen to the show, if there's things that you uh, resonated with or have questions about. We'd love to have feedback. We'd love to have you join us live if you can on a Wednesday night. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and uh, find a way to Share the share the gospel of media literacy, folks. We need more media literacy advocates out there in our schools and our communities. Good night.